Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about the two people who were probably the most pivotal, the most integral to actually building the Walt Disney World Resort. It's an intriguing story about two individuals who were both military veterans who came to the work for the Walt Disney Company who really had the biggest play in all of the build and construction that happened in building the Magic Kingdom and making it come together in some way. So I'm going to tell you the story about Admiral Joseph Fowler and General Joe Potter, the two Joes, if you will, who were the people who really were critical to making the Walt Disney World a success. So sit back and listen to the tales of these two gentlemen as I tell you about their history. We'll start this discussion by talking about likely one of the most important and sometimes overlooked architects of Walt's dreams. That's Rear Admiral Joseph W. Fowler. A little history about Fowler. Fowler came from Lewiston, Maine, born before the turn of the 20th century. He graduated from Annapolis in 1917, second in his class, youngest at the time to graduate, and served in World War I as a navigator on the submarine patrol duty. He went on to earn a degree in naval architecture from MIT in 1921 and remained in the Navy until after World War II. He built gunboats in the late 1920s while posted in Shanghai. And while he was assigned to the Navy Department in Washington, he oversaw the design changes for warships, including the aircraft carrier Saratoga and Lexington. He supervised submarine construction and repair at the Portsmouth Naval Yard in Kittery, Maine, and took command of the San Francisco Naval Shipyard at some point. Finally, he retired from the Navy in 1948 to become a private consultant, but with the Korean War ongoing, the Department of Defense recalled him in 1951 to cut through the red tape and overlapping supply systems by setting up a single catalog buying system for all of the armed services. This is more or less the basis for what they still use today. So consider what he did. In 1952, President Harry Truman appointed him a civilian director of the Federal Supply Management Agency with a mandate to root out waste in the military. His military career spanned more than 35 years as an engineer and designer of naval ships. During his long naval career, Joe met Presidents Lyndon Johnson, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower. And he told a story about sharing a bunk on a British gunship on the Yangtze River with Edward, the Prince of Wales. Now you may be asking yourself, what does Joe Fowler and his history have to do with Walt Disney? Well. He retired in 1953 from the military for the second time at the age of 60 years old, and he had thoughts about enjoying some leisure time. Except he wound up meeting a man with a different set of dreams who needed someone with Fowler's unique skills. Yep, a somewhat chance encounter turned into an entirely new career and a totally unexpected one at that. Who would have thought an admiral would become one of the most important pieces to the Disney theme park legacy? And 
that he would have a second successful career that spanned well into his 80s. Walt was finalizing his plans and was almost ready to begin construction of Disneyland. The one thing he didn't have yet, but really wanted, was a boat ride. Even in the drawings of the small park he had originally planned in Burbank, there was a mention of a Mississippi steamboat. Walt remembered meeting Joe Fowler once through a mutual friend. Walt contacted Joe Fowler and convinced him to join the construction team. He was hired to help build the boat ride, that paddle wheel steamer. Walt was savvy enough to understand that to succeed, you needed to surround yourself with the best. He once said, quote, you can design and create and build the most wonderful place in the world, but it takes people to make the dream a reality, end quote. And Fowler, showing his mettle, went on to not only oversee the construction of that steamboat, but the entire construction of Disneyland. And not only that, recalled Dick Nunes at one point, he built Disneyland in a year. He had a wonderful way of cutting through red tape and getting the job done. Fowler kept doing more and became the senior vice president for engineering and construction for the company until 1972 and stayed on as a consultant until about 1976. But he also grew his relationship with Walt Disney into a friendship and a bit of a confidant. And more than anyone else, he could see Walt's vision. He called Walt Disney, quote, the greatest man I've ever known. He'd been hired in 1954 based on his reputation as Can Do Joe and was a main figure in the development of Disneyland. Walt would say, I want something. And Fowler would say, can do, even if he had no idea how he could do it or whether it was even really possible to do it. Oh, and by the way, being a submarine builder, he also served as a technical advisor of Walt's live action film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So any of the authenticity that that has to it is because of Joe Fowler. Now, when the 1960s rolled around and Walt started planning for his next series of adventures, from the planned St. Louis waterfront to the ski resort, he turned to Fowler. And when those didn't work out, he turned his attention toward progress land and building something in Florida. And Fowler was his guy. Bob Foster was chiefly responsible for land acquisition, but Fowler was involved in the site selection, traveling incognito to Florida, and to scout out for a site of the planned property. Ground was finally broken outside of Orlando in 1967. The Admiral was in charge of engineering and construction, and the park opened on schedule in 1971. Fowler was quoted as saying, Walt didn't live long enough to see us break ground in Disney World, but he used to travel all over the property with me in a Jeep. He loved it. I remember he wanted to see how Disney World would look from the top of the Contemporary Hotel, so we got the biggest damn utility crane in Florida, and the two of us got into the bucket, and they hoisted us straight up to where the lounge at the top of the Contemporary would be. I was so damn busy hanging on, hoping to get down, and he was so enthusiastic. Oh, Joe, look at this. This is going to be great. He could visualize it all. I could see enough to realize that everything in the plans was properly located. Oh, my. He was a wonderful man. Like Disney, Fowler was a great believer in planning. Quote, all my life, I've had the responsibilities where planning was necessary. I used to tell my staff when we were building Disney World and Disneyland, now remember this, we save more money with good planning than we do in efficient building. Planning is the important thing. At one point, Fowler held three different positions with Disney, Director of Construction for Disney's Buena Vista Construction Company, Senior Vice President of Engineering and Construction for the Walt Disney Productions, and Chairman of the Board of Wet Enterprises, the former name of Walt Disney Imagineering. Frank Hubbard, president of the Hubbard Construction Company, was a neighbor and old friend of Fowler's, dating back 
to when Hubbard's company was a major player in the building of Disney World. Like others who worked closely with Fowler during those pressure cook days, Hubbard cannot recall Fowler ever losing his temper or being in anything other than an upbeat mood. He also understood what can-do really meant. Quote, he'd call me, and I'd dash out there to Johnny's Corner at State Road 535. He'd tell me what he wanted done, I'd give him a schedule, and he'd jot down notes. The last thing he'd say, always, was can-do. That meant get out. I've got somebody else to see. Get this done as soon as you can. Now, legend has it that Fowler never missed a day of work, and he had the proverbial memory like an elephant. He remembered every detail of what he was working on. He retired after the park was built, but still consulted as the park expanded, and was involved as Faves 2 was planned, but not really built. He remained in Orlando with occasional trips to his home state of Maine. He hung around with his old gang, especially General Potter, who I'll talk about in a minute. He'd hold what he called board meetings with his former colleagues, host parties at the Bay Hill Country Club, and attend fundraisers for his favorite charity, the Edgewood Children's Ranch. That Orlando ranch is a residence, school, and counseling center for children from troubled homes. He passed away about six months before his 100th birthday and lies in an unmarked site in the Woodlawn Cemetery in Gotha, Florida. There are many nods all around Disney parks to Joe's contributions. In Disneyland, the docks across from the Haunted Mansion are named Fowler's Harbor. It also features a building called Fowler's Inn, and you can find his window along Main Street in Disneyland. In Walt Disney World, one of the ferries that transports guests from the Ticket and Transportation Center on the Seven Seas Lagoon to the Magic Kingdom is named the Admiral Joe Fowler. He was without question one of the most productive and knowledgeable men in Disney history. And without him, Disney World would have never happened. And perhaps Disneyland wouldn't have either. General William E. Potter was known as Joe by everyone. He was born just after the turn of the 20th century in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Joe graduated from the United States Military Academy in West Point, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology also, and the National War College in Washington, D.C. During World War II, he directed logistical planning for the invasion of Northern France, an operation nicknamed Red Ball Express. After the war, he served in Washington, D.C. as an assistant chief of engineers for civil works and special projects. In 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower appointed Joe to serve as the governor of the Panama Canal Zone. He was responsible for governing a community of over 40,000 people, as well as services including education, military, public health, medical care, fire and police protection, and the postal system. At the end of his tenure as governor, and after 38 years in the United States Army, Joe retired in 1960. In his long career, he had been decorated with the Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, and the Croix de Guerre. Soon after his retirement, he was asked to become Executive Vice President of the 1964-65 World's Fair, charged with construction of the federal and state attractions. These included 26 state pavilions and the $17 million United States Pavilion. During this time, he met Walt Disney and impressed him with what he had pulled off in New York. As Walt was in the process of purchasing land in Florida, he offered Potter a job with the Walt Disney Company as its vice president of Florida planning. Potter said, quote, It was, as I've described it before, a real Perry Mason. Bob Foster always came here through Kansas City, where he had family roots. All the mail and memoranda and things that had to do with the acquisition of the property went through Kansas City, so there would be no tag ends of knowledge, having to do with the fact that some California firm was purchasing this property. He was given the task of assembling, as Walt put it, about 10,000 acres. 
The reason for such a large piece of property was that Walt had been sort of inhibited in his ideas of expansion because he only had 300 acres in California, and over 100 of that was parking lot. He wanted a place here big enough for future expansion and buffered from surrounding lands and activities. Bob found several pieces of property that large that seemed to fit the bill, but it narrowed down to this area, and during the course of the acquisition of 10,000, he found another 10, another five acres, and several odds and ends pieces till it added up to about 27,000 acres. Those were purchased also. Many studies were done. They were made by an organization that Walt was instrumental in starting called the Economic Research Associates, or ERA. The man who formed that organization had worked for Walt before he formed it. His principal function was to do the economic studies, feasibility studies on properties. Walt made that decision, but they were able to focus on the routes that visitors took into Florida, and when they came to the state, where they stopped, how much money they spent, and all that sort of thing. Of course, we were very fortunate with two major highways, I-4 from the southwest to, and northeast, transiting the property, and the Florida Turnpike transiting from the northwest to the southeast, and both of them serving the Tampa area, which is highly populated. It just seemed obvious that this was a very good site because of the pattern. At the time, Florida had about 16 million tourists a year. That rose to between 24 and 25 million in the late 70s, and the pattern hadn't changed immensely except for more and more people use this as a destination point rather than just a place that they went through on their way to somewhere else. In his role, Joe oversaw construction of the park's entire infrastructure. This included underground utilities and sewer and power and water treatment plants that were considered revolutionary at the time. He also developed drainage canals for the entire property, which were known as Joe's Ditches. Joe moved to Florida shortly after being hired. First, he lived in a hotel near where the reveal happened. There's a whole story about him being in the hotel when he opened the Orlando Sentinel and read about We Say Mystery Buyer is Disney. And later, he bought a house in a community near the site of the parks. And that's where all the executives lived, including Fowler. Joe Potter toured the site extensively to determine how the park should be laid out to make the best use of the existing features while maintaining the ecology and natural beauty of the area. Potter was an engineering and logistical planning genius by all accounts, which is why Walt Disney recruited the retired U.S. Army general to oversee the early construction of Walt Disney World in Florida. In this role, Joe ably guided the Herculean task of transforming 300 acres of Florida land into the Magic Kingdom. It didn't take you long to realize that Walt was a beginner of things, not a finisher, Potter once said. He had a team of engineers literally clean the sand at the bottom of Bay Lake, the natural waterway near Fort Wilderness, because the water was brown and unusable and he realized that wasn't going to work. But none of this was easy. There were a few holdout landowners unwilling to sell. There were some minor labor issues, skeptical government officials, and Orlando didn't have a major airport as it was about to become this tourism hotspot. But again, it was Potter who went on the public relations offensive, negotiating and cajoling and earning himself the nickname Mr. Disney in Orlando as he became the liaison for the company to the community. He said once, the cooperation of the county government had mostly to do with the county type roads and we got quite good cooperation from them. We got extremely good cooperation from the state in putting in the interchanges on I-4 and improving then State Road 530 from a two-lane minor use road to a six-lane major use road. Eventually, that was put into the U.S. system and is called U.S. 192. I can't compliment the state more than by saying that we got 100% cooperation from them in every way. As former president of Walt Disney Attractions Dick Nunes said of him in 1988, 
Joe was a man who Walt was very fond of. Without Joe Potter, there would be no Disney World today. And Potter once said of Disney, In my life, I've only worked for two geniuses, Mr. Moses, who oversaw the 1964-65 World's Fair, and Mr. Disney. You could never say, that won't work, or there are too many problems. That would be a fatal flaw and ruined you in their eyes. Now, there are a couple of key things that Potter did which were remarkable in their own right. The first had to do with drainage. This was Swampland, and he came up with an innovative means to drain everything toward the downtown Disney area. It ensured that the theme park and the surrounding areas all stayed dry. This was accomplished by creating runoff areas and using a series of waterways to help with that. And this was important for another reason too. One of the things he learned from the Panama Canal Zone, where people were dying of malaria, was that you, if you let water just sit there, you're going to have a problem. He insisted to Walt, whatever we do, wherever there's water, we've got to make sure it's either running off or moving because if it's just sitting there, you're going to have a lot of mosquitoes. In another quote, he said, the major problem that we had to do in the district was to construct and install a system of water controls. Our system was based primarily on being able to let floods when they happen or immediately through a system of automatic gates, which would shut as soon as the flood had passed. Through the use of these gates, we were able to keep the groundwater at a level that it had before, so the root systems of trees would think that things were just as normal as they had always been. And that leads around to the second thing. The decision to dredge out the area between the parking area and the Magic Kingdom. This is what became the Seven Seas Lagoon. It allowed for more drainage, and the fill dirt was used to raise the Magic Kingdom about 12 feet above sea level. The result was that the surfacing was done under the theme park, so you would never see garbage trucks or deliveries or anything else that distracts from the experience, and the water could run off to ground level. An engineer, Potter was determined to build an infrastructure for Disney World, including underground sewers, underground power, and water treatment plants, which many civic leaders termed impractical or futuristic. He said, I went out there and got three Cracker Jack college professors to show me how to do it. And then I got me another professor to help put the utilities underground. That's just how it worked. The third thing that Potter did was his decision to move all of the support services to one area north of the theme park. It consolidated everything in one area and ultimately made servicing the theme park simpler and allowed for access where no one would see it. From an engineering standpoint, this was genius. And not surprisingly, they called it central services. At the time of his second retirement in 1974, Joe was serving as the Vice President for Epcot Planning and Senior Vice President of Walt Disney World Company. In this role, he was responsible for the construction, operation, and administration of the entire Florida project. He also served as the President of the Board of Supervisors of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was formed by the Florida Legislature to provide the public services necessary for the tourist and residential population of Disney World. He said in an interview, one of my duties was to establish the government, the Reedy Creek Improvement District. A law was passed by the Florida legislature that set up the government as practically self-sufficient on the Disney property. In that way, we were able to establish our own building department, develop our own building codes, establish our own zoning, and do all of the things that are normally done by a county. You must realize that at that time, Orange County did not have the facilities to examine plans for, let's say, a castle. No complicated buildings had been built in Orange County, so the county, of course, was not staffed to examine plans and conduct the inspections requiring all buildings to meet safety and welfare specifications of those buildings. 
We were able to staff our building department with very competent people, and when we had plans that were too complicated, we hired outside people with great expertise on short-term basis to examine those buildings structurally. That was one of my jobs. Potter served on numerous civic and business boards, including the Greater Orlando Aviation Authority, and shortly after his retirement, he said, our major concern with Orlando had to do with the airport. In all candor, I'm hopeful that plans for a new airport at McCoy will do all the things that large numbers of tourists coming by air will require in order for them to be happy in coming here via that method of transportation. Of course, roads will still bring in the major number of people, but Orlando is not involved in that problem. That's our problem. Now, by the way, just one little footnote, McCoy Airfield did become Orlando International Airport. And if you're wondering, that's why it has the designation MCO if you look at your ticket. Joe passed away on December 5th, 1988 in Orlando, Florida. Now, like his longtime friend, Admiral Fowler, he's buried at the Woodlawn Cemetery up in Gotha, Florida. As far as legacies that he's left, one of the ferries that transports Walt Disney World guests across the Seven Seas Lagoon, of course, is named the General Joe Potter in his honor. And you can find his name along Main Street in a window above the bakery in the Magic Kingdom. It's an honor that is given to a lot of people who were very instrumental, and I would argue, as I said before, the two of them were the most instrumental in making sure that Walt Disney World came to be. The Magic Kingdom probably would not have been built if it hadn't been for Admiral Fowler and General Potter. And they both had intriguing backstories and lots of things that happened to get them here. And these were second careers for them as retired people, but they really brought together something special. And because they got to know Walt along the way, it became a much more interesting and connected story. And you can find their legacy at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation right at the start of everything that's new one little spark lights up for you for my one little spark segment today i wanted to focus for a moment on elections and kind of talking about the general nature of elections in our nation we have two hallmarks of our democracy that are really important. One is free and fair elections, and two is that peaceful transition of power from one person to the next, so we have a seamlessly integrated system that allows for the next person to take over. And it's really important. Those are really two of the most important things that we have as our democracy. And the assault that happened on the Capitol in January of 2021 undermined both of them, essentially, and show us how fragile our our democracy is. Now you can try to soft sell it and say something about that, the series of events that happened there. A lot led into them, but make no mistake, that assault on the Capitol was a seditious act that is against everything we stand for as a democracy. Now let me try and explain. And I'm going to use George Washington as my example here. If you look back in history, when George Washington was this uh, lauded man, he was revered. People loved Washington and the things that he did. And they were very excited when, he, when we needed a new president, uh, the first president of this country, uh, that he was running. And there was a lot of uh, love and a lot of you know, excitement about the future with him as president. So he ran and he won unanimously. No problem, right? Easy, easy win for him. And when his four-year term was up, he ran again. And he won again pretty handily and was a two-term president for the first time out. And people started asking him, what are you gonna do next? As he ended his second term, are you gonna stay on? And his answer was interesting because 
The man had thought about stepping away after one term, but the fledgling nation really needed him, so he'd stayed for that second term. So when he was asked if he was staying for a third term, his answer was, no, I'm going to step down. I'm not a king. I'm a president. I'm here to represent the people. I'm going to step away and let someone else take power. And this was a really interesting thing that he chose to do that I think was really that moment when you can summarize exactly what happened with uh, this country and how we got started as a democracy. Now, an interesting little side story here. When he was first thinking about uh, stepping away, one of the people that he talked to was Alexander Hamilton. So when you see the play Hamilton and you hear some of the songs about Washington stepping down from office and moving on, it really fits in thematically with what he was doing in real life. Right? So it's pretty amazing when you think about it, how the, the play Hamilton kind of captured the essence of that moment where Washington knew that it was time for him to step aside. And he looked to Hamilton for help, for how, what to say. And he wrote something kind of interesting. So he wrote this essay in, in 1796 that got published in the American Daily Advertiser. And then it got reprinted throughout the country and people started to see it. And I believe he spoke of it several times as well. Now in it, he makes clear that, that he's not running for a third term and then thanks his fellow citizens for the opportunity to serve as president. He then writes about the preservation of the union, the core of American nationhood, and along with the constitution, which really binds all Americans together and provides for popular well-being. Concerned about the obstacles and potential hazards that lay ahead for the nation, Washington urges the nation's people to cherish and safeguard their hard-won system of Republican government, despite their many differences. Now remember that the word Republican here in this context is because we had generated a Federalist Republic. So people that were in it were Republicans. It's not the political party, it's the system of government. So he says in it, the unity of government, which constitutes you one people, is also now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. But as it is easy to foresee that, from different causes and from different quarters, with much pains will be taken, many artifices employed, to weaken in your minds the conviction of this truth. As this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously, directed, it is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness that you should cherish a cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it, accustoming yourselves to think and speak of it as the palladium of your political safety and prosperity, watching for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discountenancing whatever may suggest even a suspicion that it can be in any event abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts." End quote. Washington was a smart guy, and with the help of Hamilton, he wrote this. And what he's talking about is exactly what is happening in this country right now. We're, we're dividing ourselves from within with all the conspiracy theories and all these things, you know, the big lie, if you will, that the election was stolen in some way. It was a free and fair election, exactly as called for in the Constitution. And there was, more or less, the peaceful uh, transition of power at the end of the day, even though that was disrupted for a period of time. And it's important to remember that those two things have to happen. 
And as a final thought on how that peaceful transition of power happened in Washington's time, Washington stepped away and decided not to run for president. And that was great, as far as that goes. For our nation, it was a tremendous thing. But as the sitting president who was outgoing, he went to the event where they inaugurated the new president. And at the time, it was at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And they went into the building there, and you can still tour the building and see the places where this happened. George Washington was there, and John Adams was there, John Adams being the next president. John Adams was certified as the president, and then he was sworn in. And the deal was that they wanted to exit the building in a certain order to show this transition of power. And Congress had thought that the right answer was to have George Washington leave the building first as though he was leading this processional out and showing people that he was transitioning power. But Washington was smarter than that and said, nope, I don't want to walk out of the building first because that makes me more important than the next president of the United States, than my former vice president, John Adams. He should go out first. I should go out second. And so it went. But you see how this orderly transition of power has to happen? For, this, for the person that's leaving office to gracefully step away and say, you know what, I lost, and we move on. The country needs to move on. That's more important. The, the, the country is more important than the person, and we've kind of lost sight of that. And in January of 2021, we totally lost sight of that. There was a whole thing about, oh, maybe he won, maybe he didn't win, and there was a whole plan to undermine the election. This is where we lose democracy. And it's important to understand that so that we fight for our democracy, that we fight hard for it, that we maintain it. Otherwise, we lose it for good. You only get one shot at democracy. Once it's gone, that's it. You move on to whatever form of government comes next, whatever that will be. So it's important to keep that in mind and think about how you have these free and fair elections and this peaceful transition of power that are the hallmarks of our nation and what we do as a democracy. We're not so secure in our democracy that we can overcome this time and again. This was our one shot. This was, the, this was the opportunity to realize that our democracy is fragile. Anyway, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gilles. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.